Uh, We want to look this morning at Psalm 121. Psalm 121. And so if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. Psalm 121 says this. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we are once again grateful that we can even do that because of what Christ, your Son, has done on our behalf. And Father, we're grateful that you are the God who has spoken, who has given us the scriptures that we can hold in our hands, that we can read here together. And so, Father, we now ask that as the author of those scriptures, you would bless them, that you would send your Spirit once again to be our teacher to illuminate this text that we might understand it, that it might encourage us. And Father, we ultimately pray that we would not just be people who are hearers of the word, but who are doers. And so God, we ask once again that as we have so many competing voices that clamor for our attention, that we would in this moment allow ourselves to be still before you, the living God, and that the words of your scripture would overpower and overshadow those other voices that we might once again be reminded of your love and be reminded that you are the God who is mighty to save. And we ask all this in the name of the word who became flesh, Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, today we begin a uh, a short series, a four-part series for the month of November on the Psalms of Ascent. And the Psalms of Ascent are basically Psalm 120 through Psalm 134 in your Bible. And obviously in four weeks, we won't have a chance to look at all of them, but rather we will just look at a sampling of those Psalms. And these Psalms are uh, literally songs that have held a unique place uh, in the people of God throughout time. The majority of scholars uh, have recognize that the reason they're called the Psalms of Ascent is because they were literally songs that were sung by pilgrims as they traveled and made their way to Jerusalem. That as God's people, they were making pilgrimage and they were literally ascending topographically to Mount Zion, where Jerusalem Sat For you must recall that uh, when King David conquered Jerusalem, he originally conquered it as a city that was originally a city of the Jebusites. And one of the reasons it was a desirable city is because it had this very strategic location. It's fairly centrally located in what is now Israel. But beyond that, it sits on this sort of natural plateau. It has this elevated Location that gives it sort of this natural fortification. And so a literal or physical ascent up to 
Mount Zion was required. Think in our modern day of going to Denver or something like that, the mile-high city. So these pilgrims would journey to Jerusalem and would literally ascend topographically. But also, as we know, on a pilgrimage, they wouldn't just ascend physically, but they would be ascending spiritually. As they meandered through the dangers and the doldrums of of life in this world, they would be ascending spiritually. A visit to Jerusalem was one, if you want to think of it this way, that kind of had an elevated purpose as you're focusing your attention on God, on who he is, on what he's done, on what he's called us to do. And so a visit to Jerusalem, this visit of ascension, would be a visit that sort of reorients the life. It reorients the life of the pilgrim as they are once again uh, reminding themselves of what is most real, what is most true. And I mentioned that in our profession of faith this morning. The same thing happens for us as we gather in worship on Sunday. We have this tendency to sometimes think that uh, Sabbath worship or coming to church is a break from reality. That the real world is out there and this is now a respite or a break from reality. But actually it's the opposite. That when we come together as the people of God, when we come together in God's house, when we come together and worship the God of the universe, we're actually reorienting ourselves to that which is most real. We're reminding ourselves once again of what is really true. It's not what the world tells us, not the priorities of the world, but it is God who sets the agenda. And so these pilgrims who would go and who would ascend to Jerusalem were doing so physically. They were doing so spiritually. And the, the, the dangers of that journey are well documented. And so again, these songs would function as songs of hope, songs of encouragement that wouldn't just get them through the journey itself to Jerusalem, but then could sustain them even after they had journeyed. These are songs of great hope and encouragement. But again, they're also songs of great clarity. As they're reminded once again of that which is most real. And so these songs then, and even these songs now, are songs that we sing between the times. For we're all on this spiritual pilgrimage. We find ourselves currently in the city of man. We find ourselves currently in this earthly life full of difficulties and trials and pains. But we know as Christians, as those who have been bought by the saving blood of Christ Jesus, this is not our final home. That we are on a pilgrimage to the new Jerusalem. We are on a pilgrimage to the new heavens and the new earth where King Jesus will reign forever. And so these songs are songs for us to sing on our journey as well. And so as we consider specifically this morning, Psalm 121. And as we, as the people at Coral Ridge, find ourselves also in a season of difficulty, a season still of mourning, and a season of pain and trial, the question is, well, what does this psalm then specifically have to offer for us? What specifically 
the Psalm 21 offer in the way of encouragement? And I think it offers three things for us this morning. If you take a look again at your scriptures, Psalm 121 offers us three things. It offers us the need for help, the source of our help, and the basis of our help. The need for help, the source of help, and the basis of our help. So again, look at verse 1. What does the psalmist say? I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? You see, this question, from where does my help come, is not just a biblical question. It's not even just a Christian question. But it is a fundamentally human question. When life throws me that curveball, from where does my help come? When we lose health, from where does my help come? When we lose a loved one, where does my help come? When we lose financial security, where does my help come? When we lose a job or a relationship or a reputation or whatever it might be, from where does our help come? You see, this is a question that every single person has asked and will continue to ask at one time or another. When I'm in trouble, where does my help come? And so you see, the psalmist, when he recognizes the need for help, he then goes on a search for help. And in his search for help, the psalmist directs his eyes to the hills. He looks up to the hills and he says, is that where my help comes? I lift my eyes to the hills. And you have to ask ourselves, well, why? Why of all places does the psalmist look to the hills? And the reason is because in that time, the hills or the quote-unquote high places in Israel are the places where there are other shrines. There are other altars that are set up to competing gods. If you remember, Israel is not always a faithful people. And so in the high places, there are still semblances of altars and of shrines to other gods that people could go and worship, they could go and attend to. And so he lifts his eyes to the hills and says, is that where my help comes from? From those other places? Clearly, God must have abandoned me. Do I now turn there instead? And so they'd ask themselves, if your, you know, if your crops had failed, well, then go to the hills and sacrifice to the God of the harvest, and perhaps your fortune will be turned around. Does your wife remain barren and unable to produce an heir? Then run to the hills and sacrifice to the goddess of fertility. And again, perhaps your fortunes will be turned. Are you anxious about a battle that looms ahead? Do you want to guarantee for yourself security and success? Well, Baal and his temple prostitutes await your visit. Go there. Go there and hedge your bets. You see, the need for help causes the search for help. And in our search for help, the psalmist, he looks to those other places. He looks to those other gods and goddesses. He looks to the hills. And we do the very same thing. 
when the need for help comes, we search for help. And as sinners, we'll naturally turn to the hills of this life first. What is it for you? Only you can answer that. Where do you turn in your time of greatest need? When the bottom falls out of your life, where do you immediately run? Where do you immediately turn your gaze? Because you see, difficulty has a way of just refocusing us. Difficulty has a way of kind of pulling back that facade and getting us to see functionally where it is we actually are putting our trust. And I say functionally because we can confessionally know where our trust is. We can confess that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. We can confess that. But functionally, when the bottom of your life falls out, in those moments of trial, where is it that you really run? What is your default turning of your gaze? Where do you place it? And perhaps it even goes beyond help. Because your life might be going fairly well right now. And help is the furthest thing from your mind. But besides help, where do you turn your life? Where's the first place you turn? Where is your gut instinct turn for acceptance or for meaning in your life or for purpose or for security or comfort or peace? Where do you look? Where do I look? Where do we run? If it's anything other than the gospel or other than Christ Jesus, then in that moment, it might not be forever, but in that moment, that thing or that person is our functional Lord. And we're trying to make them then our functional Savior. And so the psalmist turns to the hills and he looks to these other sources and he says, is that where my help comes from? And he ultimately realizes, just like we ultimately realize as we work through this life, that those other sources can't deliver. Those other sources ultimately fall short. They might dull that that sense of pain for a moment, but they can't remedy it fully. They are not the source of our help, just like they weren't the source of help for the psalmist. And so the question then is, well, what is that source? If we have the need for help, then what is the source of our help? Look again, look at verses uh, 2 through 4. The psalmist says, My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. You see, the psalmist exhorts us that when life on this earth confounds us and confuses us and even wounds us, that we're not to look to the things in this world or on this earth, but to the one who stands outside of it, to the one who stands above it. What does a psalmist call him? We look to the maker of heaven and earth. If you recall in the New Testament, Paul later in Romans 1, when speaking of the universal nature of human sin, he will sum it all up by saying the human race has exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And we've worshipped and we've served the creature 
rather than the, than the Creator, who is blessed forever. In other words, what Paul is telling us is that the nature of sin is that we will always worship things that are smaller than God. We will make idols out of what has been created rather than worship the Creator Himself. And because we do that in our worship, it's easy to also employ that same exact tactic when we're looking for help. We will try to find it in the things of this world. And yet the psalmist says, it's this very world that has wounded you. Don't look there. Look outside of it. Look to the maker himself. He alone can help you. He alone can help you. And so to borrow a great quote from C.S. Lewis, you've probably heard me say this before, I quote him probably too often, uh, if there is such a a thing, but C.S. Lewis, he says this, he says, if I find in myself a longing that nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical conclusion is that I was made for another world. You see, Lewis's point was that no matter the pleasure that we enjoy, the heights of ecstasy, the heights of success, we will still come up longing. There will still always be somewhere inside of us an emptiness and a void. The deepest love, the highest success, the most pleasurable of experiences, they last for a moment, but yet they still leave us wanting. They still leave us searching. They still leave an inkling of dissatisfaction. And so Lewis concludes that if that's so with pleasure, if nothing in this world can ultimately satisfy us, then we must be made for another world. Because where did that desire come from? It is meant to be satisfied, but it won't be satisfied here. It'll be satisfied in the new heavens and the new earth. But if that's true for pleasure, then I would argue it's true for pain also. If we could rework that quote, and Lewis says, if I find in myself a hurt or a pain or a need that nothing in this world can remedy, the only logical conclusion the psalmist tells us is to look outside of this world. To look outside of this world and to look to the maker of heaven and earth himself. He is the only answer. You see, the pleasures of this life are fleeting. They'll never ultimately satisfy. And the coping mechanisms of this world, when trial comes, when pain comes, when difficulty comes, they also will fall short and are fleeting. If we go and try to drown our sorrow in alcohol or a substance, we'll find our sorrows can swim. If we go and try to right that wrong that happened to us through revenge, we'll find ourselves still a slave to that person. When financial insecurity strikes, if we go and try to multiply our money or our possessions by holding them tighter, by not being generous, by cutting God and others out of the equation and spending our money only on ourselves and our ambitions, we'll find our lives are actually shrunk and the horizons of our life are smaller and not larger. You see, the source of help here on earth, all the sources have their limitations. They're all fleeting. They're all only 
temporary. And so the psalmist says we must turn our hopes, we must turn our gaze and our attention and our affection to the limitless God, to the God who made heaven and earth. He is the source of our help, and he alone. But if you were like me, as you were reading this psalm, and as you're tracking along with sort of the the trajectory of it, you might have asked yourself, well, if God made the world and there's pain and sorrow in it, why would I look to him? Isn't he to blame? Isn't he to blame? Isn't he the last person I should run to? That's where we must continue and look further. We don't just have the need for help. We don't just have the source of help being God alone. But now we see the basis of God's help. Look at verse uh, 5. It says, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade and your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Notice how the psalmist doesn't paint for us a false reality. Whoever thinks that Christianity is an escape from reality or an opiate for the masses or this sort of just pie in the sky, rainbows and butterflies, act like everything's fine kind of religion or philosophy is severely misguided. Look how the psalmist writes. He doesn't paint a false reality here. He doesn't paint a false rose-colored picture. What does he say? The Lord is our preventer? No. The Lord is our escape? No. The Lord is our ticket to health and wealth and a permanent smile? No. What does he say? He says, the Lord is our keeper. The Lord is our shade. You see, that means that God doesn't promise to evacuate us from adversity. God doesn't promise to evacuate us from difficulty or to exempt us from the collateral damage that our human freedom and that sin has wrecked on the world. But what does he do? He promises to be there with us in the midst of it. What does the New Testament call that God when Jesus arrives on the scene? It's that word borrowed from the Old Testament prophecies. Emmanuel, God with us. God with us in the midst. Psalm 23 will also, as we know, very, very well, familiar psalm will tell us that even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord is with us. The Lord is with us and he will comfort us. You see, God doesn't exempt us from, if you look in the text, the sun's scorching rays, that metaphor he gives us. He doesn't exempt us from the scorching rays of the sun, the heat of this life. He doesn't exempt us from those things any more than he exempted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from that fiery furnace in Babylon so long ago. But what does he do? He promises, like with them, to be with us in the midst of the flames that we might not be consumed. You see, he's our shade. He's our keeper. 
And you see, God doesn't exempt us from the moon. If you look at the text again, the moon striking us by night. What is that a metaphor for? The madness of the world. The madness of living life here in a broken world, in a chaotic society. That word lunacy, where does it come from? The word for moon, lunar. See, this this idea of a moonstroke. You're struck by the madness of this world. The lunacy of life under the sun. You see, God doesn't promise to deliver us from those feelings either. But again, what does he promise? That he will shade us. That we might not be consumed. That we might not be overtaken completely. That we might not be given more than we can bear. And you see, finally, we know that we have ultimately been kept from all evil. How can he say that? This psalmist will also die, has also died. So how can he say that God will keep us from all evil? Because he knows the one to come. You see, God has ultimately kept us from all evil through the work of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't mean that evil hasn't tried and won't continue to try and at times hasn't touched our very fragile lives. But because of the resurrection... Because of that glorious resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead, we know that evil will not have the final word. That in Christ Jesus and his resurrection from the grave, no matter what this world throws at us, we've been promised. We've been promised that Christ Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. And if he's the firstborn, what does that imply? There are others to come. And that for those who trust in his strong and saving name, that is your destiny as well. That just like he rose from the grave, that is your destiny as well, and you also will rise from the grave. And we can truly say here what the psalmist says, that our going out of this world and our coming in to the eternal paradise and eternal kingdom of God is kept and it's protected and it's guaranteed by the Lord himself, the maker of heaven and earth, our shade and our keeper and our help, now and forevermore.